from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Hi Nick. Lindsay. Hi, Taylor. We're shameless, you guys. Flat tire? Must be. Welcome to Bike Talk, everybody. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the last story from last week's episode about the ride of silence, and it's really stayed with me about how dangerous some of our roads are. We're trying to get the word out there to make our roads safer. And in this episode, we have uh, the entitled cyclist from Los Angeles on the show. And then we have the executive director of Hope Village Revitalization in Detroit. Yeah. And then we have the city engineer from East Hampton. That's a town in Western Massachusetts. We're, we're trying to represent all the places where bike talk is on the radio. We're going to triangulate bike advocacy from east, west, and all the way to the middle. And shout out to Florence, Oregon, KXCR 90.7 FM, which is planning to include Bike Talk in their programming, bringing the Pacific Northwest into the picture for more detail. Lindsay, are we on in in Florence, Oregon and Florence, Massachusetts? I guess so. (laughs) This is big. Hey, Nick, are there any other Florences we we can get on the air? Italy. Well, we do a lot of biking there. Right. We should recruit an international correspondent. Well, maybe that'll be our next guest, because up first we have Mark Pasco, who's the director of communications for the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy, which just opened the Southwest Greenway recently. And he's here to talk about that. You know, we've been talking a lot about what's going on in Detroit with the Joe Lewis Greenway. And this is a new part of that. So, uh, Mark Pasco, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you so much for having me. What's going on in the Motor City? Oh, there's a lot going on at the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy. Our vision is five and a half miles of revitalized riverfront. So we continue to revitalize that riverfront and create green spaces and and public spaces and uh, make it an accessible and inviting place for everyone. And we just opened up our newest greenway a week or so back, the Southwest Greenway. You know, we we have had a few stories on about the Joe Lewis Greenway. How, How does this fit in with that? The Southwest Greenway is an integral part of the Joe Lewis Greenway. It's a little more than a half mile long, the Southwest Greenway, but it's a major portion of the Joe Lewis Greenway, which is going to be 27.5 miles throughout the city of Detroit and touch several other communities. It connects some of the most vibrant neighborhoods in Detroit to the riverfront, which is undergoing this tremendous revitalization. What's the big center in the riverfront there? The Renaissance Center is is General Motors World Headquarters. It's right there in downtown Detroit on the riverfront. And yeah, the riverfront revitalization is right there. It kind of surrounds the Renaissance Center. And the Southwest Greenway is really interesting and, and notable because, you know, we're the Motor City. The three domestic automakers are located here. And Ford Motor Company is undertaking a tremendous revitalization of this old train station that sat vacant for decades. And they're bringing it back from the dead, so to speak, and turning it into a mobility hub, a technology mobility hub. And that is right on the edge of the Southwest Greenway. So not only do you have all the people who are going to work in that building and the buildings around it, but there's a lot of great neighborhoods like Southwest Detroit and Mexican town, Corktown in that area, they're all going to have safe, convenient access to the riverfront. Does this mean that that people could then ride that area to work and things like that rather than being in a car? Absolutely. You know, Detroit is a motor city and, and I don't think the cars will never go away. But yeah, I mean, Detroit is one of the, the more walkable and bicyclable 
if you will, cities in the country. And with the Greenway, the Southwest Greenway, the Joe Lewis Greenway we're talking about, the other two Greenways, the Quindercut and Dennis Archer Greenway we have, Detroit is getting more and more bicyclist friendly as we speak. So yeah, I mean, right now you can go to work, you can go to the market, you can go have a few drinks and have dinner all on your bike. Well, later in the show, we have Jeff Jones on with the Hope Village Revitalization Project. And I think one of the great things that he mentions in the interview, uh, Nick, with you, is that this is really a community-led project. The community is very much behind it, which is great to hear. Yeah, a lot has gone into this. So thanks, Mark, for coming on. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And now we go to your interview, Taylor, with the Entitled Cyclist. Right. Tom Morash in Los Angeles. I'm here with Tom Marash, better known as the Entitled Cyclist. It's funny because Tom and I both work in the entertainment industry. Tom and I both ride bikes all over Los Angeles. Tom and I are both involved in advocacy, but Tom and I have never met until Tuesday when I read the New York Times and saw a really wonderful article about the Entitled Cyclist. And then we had a chance to ride together on Thursday at a Bike the Strike ride where we rode all around Los Angeles, hitting all of the WGA striking spots at the studios. So the Entitled Cyclist, Tom Marash, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Tell me how you got started. When when did you kind of give up your daily commutes in, in your car and, and why did you do that? And how did you find cycling? Yeah, so I um, uh, it's probably about 10, 10-ish years ago, I would say. I was working on a TV show at Paramount with a friend of mine, Daryl, who uh, also rides in LA all the time. And I saw that he was commuting every day. And um, I had just gotten into running. So I really hadn't before that been too much of a, uh, you know, exercise, too much aerobic exercise. But I was um, from running, I was like, you know, biking would be another great way to get exercise and to try to avoid all the traffic that I'm in all the time. So with Daryl's sort of guidance, I got a, my wife actually bought me a bike randomly and um around that time i started asking daryl all about like well how, how do you and you're crazy for riding over the hill to go to work every day like i don't understand how. he sort of kind of kind of put his arm around me as a it kind of led me into the path of, of, of bike commuting and yeah i used to get really frustrated driving to work and you know in, in our business as you know we're we're going to different locations all the time not just one studio necessarily it could be a location downtown one day and pasadena the next and i just got really frustrated with being in the car and and it would take me an hour to get to downtown or wherever it was and so i I start when I started riding my bike, I realized pretty quickly that even on a road bike and even still getting my legs under me, I I could get to these work locations faster on a bike than I was getting in my car. And that really it really just kind of kept going from there. Um, And now that I have an e-bike, I'll I'll ride to even further locations. I'll ride to Manhattan Beach. I'll ride to Pasadena downtown on either bike. Like it's it's um, it's really just changed the way that I feel about getting around or my approach to getting around in LA. And it, uh, it really keeps me, it forces me to stay in shape a little bit. I would drive to work. And then when I got home, I'd be like, Oh, I want to go running to try to get some exercise. But now I can kind of do both at the same time. And it's just a lot lower stress to be on the bike than in the car. And 
you know, that's, it, it's really hard to go back from there. So when I really yeah. started doing it, I, I haven't looked back. And, yeah. Yeah. And I think once you go, <laughs> once you go bike, you never go back. I totally agree with that. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, well, well let me ask you what started you then recording all of your rides, because I saw you yesterday <laughs> and you had quite mm -hmm. an apparatus on your helmet <laughs> recording everything. And, Absolutely. you know, since then I've been really enjoying looking at some of your videos. Oh, They're nice. really funny. And I got to tell you the music, is is what makes some of them also I'm, the last one i just heard had this da -dum, da -dum, da -dum kind of music in it and it was really really great so what made you go from just writing to recording everything and then posting you know, it i can't remember i truly should look this up but there was a webinar that i attended a long time ago about about video evidence for cyclists and that sort of put it in my mind i hadn't really thought about it um but then also i just thought you see so many news reports and and uh, news videos and police statements and so on that will just very immediately take the driver's side when there is a, an incident involving a pedestrian or a bicyclist or anyone else. And, you know, so that, because, you know, sadly, oftentimes the only survivor of these situations is the driver and, and everyone's pretty quick to excuse bad behavior from driving um, because we all drive, you know, in theory, we all right. drive. So we can, right. we can all relate to that experience and we don't want to feel guilty about driving. It's kind of how I look at it. So I, I realized that kind of all came together that one way to really combat that if there's an incident is to have my own video of it. So I, started with a, a cyclic fly six that had just come out at this point that was like a rear facing camera and i so i put that on my seat post and then i got a, a an older cheap gopro on the front and i just sort of kind of kept recording it i wouldn't really do anything with the footage unless there was a major incident to notate and then when i realized that i could start to collect collect more visual evidence of what it's like to to ride in LA. Right. Um, so eventually I upgraded to getting a 360 camera on top of my helmet, which is what you saw yesterday. Right. And I started saving everything. And I realized when I started my Twitter account, probably about five years ago, that those videos were a good opportunity for me to to put people in the seat with me about what it's like to ride in LA. And Came out well, then the next step is when did you start posting it and creating this this um, alter ego, this this <laughs> this avatar of the entitled yeah. cyclist, which I just love the title because the last thing we are on this roads in Los Angeles is is entitled. Exactly, but yeah, but you hear that you hear that phrase, you know, these entitled cyclists, these all it is. So I, I they think they own nice the road. <laughs> way to, yeah, I thought it was a nice way to kind of turn that around and own it a little bit and uh, insert the to live and in between it, entitled to live is kind of the theory. So I, yeah. um, you know, I want to say it was about early 2018. Some is probably about when I started noticing that there was a bike Twitter. Um, you know, I started following Ted from biking in LA. I started following. Um, Anyone, anyone else you can think of in the, yeah, in the bike, bike Twitter. Like LA, Peter Flax. Yeah, you know, like LA, Peter Flax, that was the name I was looking for. Um, yeah, name, people like that. I just started realizing that this existed. I had no idea. You know, I, I go on Twitter to look at sports or news or whatnot, and, and I kind of stumbled into that. I started pretty anonymous. And then la about a year and a half ago, I uh, an LA Times reporter reached out for comment um, about an incident that happened, and I, and I gave my opinion about it, and they wanted to use my name. So I just figured I'd put my name and face on it. And yeah, over the last year and a half, I've definitely gone the other direction. And you're right, there's been an LA Times article now and a New York Times article. And I'm obviously I've given up on the anonymity of it. But And you're um, on Bike Talk, come on. And I'm on Bike Talk, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
Tell me, uh, what advice do you give to some of our listeners who, you know, like to ride, can ride, have mm-hmm. a bike, want to ride, uh, mm-hmm. but are scared of of the roads? You know, what what kind of advice would you give them to getting started? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I get, I do get asked that a lot, and I think the the main things I've sort of settled on as an answer to that are um, don't do too much. Like if you, uh, you know, don't don't necessarily do it every day. If you want to get into commuting um do it once a week or do it uh once a month even whatever whatever it takes to get yourself get you into it and then in terms of safety it's do whatever makes you feel safest it's like if if riding really slow on the sidewalk is gonna keep you on your bike and get you moving then do whatever makes you feel safest if uh riding with another person helps um taking the bus for some of the ride if whatever Anything you can do that the biggest thing I don't want to see happen is somebody start to bike commute because I have seen this people I work with are like, I want to start riding and they do it for a month and they do it a month straight and they're really into it, but then they they just give up and they never do it again. So that mm-hmm. that's the thing I don't want to see. So it's whatever whatever you can do to to ease your way into it is the best way to go. Like find mm-hmm. that side street that's a little bit off your path, might add half a mile, but you're gonna feel safer about it. That's you know, I'd say that's the biggest advice to do what feels safest right. for you. My biggest advice on using the sidewalk is just defer to the pedestrians and, and people on scooters and people in wheelchairs. Defer to everyone else that's not you because, you know, it's a sidewalk. But like, but I would not hesitate to use it if that's going to be your best option. You have so many great videos. I wonder if you could tell us, you know, one or two of your favorite stories or interactions with motorists or something like that. In life, I don't see myself as a very confrontational person. There's something though about the adrenaline of being threatened by a multi-ton vehicle behind you that kind of pulls it out of me. I do try to stay calm and within myself, but I've got some examples like that where that's gone well. (laughs) Um, You know, the thing I have to remind myself is that uh, it could just as easily not go well. There's another one of the more popular videos is um, I called somebody out for driving through a stop sign without even slowing, just with a hand gesture and said something like, you're going to stop or you're not going to stop. And about several blocks later, they had actually chased me down and took a run at me in the bike lane um, while, while slamming on the horn. Um, so I think their intention was to scare me. I don't necessarily know that they were really hoping to hit me. Examples like that are kind of why it's it's it probably is important and not worth it to to get into confrontations. I try to have them be productive, you know, rather than just screaming and yelling at people. Yeah, I, I don't um, think that works either. Yeah. Screaming and yelling. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can't help it because like you said, mm-hmm. your adrenaline is just cranking because you almost got yeah. hit by this four thousand pound, you know, SUV. I mm-hmm. I find sometimes when I have a close encounter on the road and I catch the driver at the next stoplight or the next stop sign or something is I, I often just say, Hey, you scared me. And because if, mm-hmm. if I accuse them of speeding or coming too close to me, they just say, no, I wasn't. But if, if I kind of bring it back to me and say, you scared me, I, I was scared back there. Then they mm-hmm. kind of soften and go, Oh, I, you know, I'm, I didn't mean to scare you, man. And, and that kind of opens the door to, them realizing that it's a human being on the bike, not just a cyclist. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Um, no, that's great advice. I, you know, there's the, you're right. I mean, anything you can do to rehumanize yourself is, is important because they, yeah, when you're behind the windshield uh, of a car of, of that massive machine, everything else around you is dehumanized. So right. if you can put, put yourself back into being seen as a human in their eyes that that's i think that's fantastic advice yeah i like that a lot 
We had Mm -hmm. um, a guest on last week on Bike Talk who talked about, we can't just make biking better. We have to make driving worse because Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. if it's equal and we have great bike lanes and great driving lanes with free parking at the end of that drive, people will still choose driving because God, driving's great. I mean, you know, if there's no traffic and you're in this, you know, $60,000 car with a beautiful sound system and air conditioner or a a roof, if it's raining, it's really hard to be driving. So we have to make driving worse also. And you had a great quote. I, I forgot what it was. I'm sure you remember about Biden and his 9,000 pound <laughs> yeah, electric I, Hummer I or whatever. By replacing gasoline with electric cars, it's like we're replacing one problem with a slightly with a slightly better problem by making driving a worse option than not just biking, you know, transit, walking, any any other option. You know, that's that's what we're doing. We're just we're we're it's still we're still pushing driving as the main option in this country. I get people explaining to me all the time, well, the political process is slow, you have to take steps, etc. And I just it, it that is all too slow and I get frustrated and I feel like my role I guess is to be frustrated by that because I do understand that you're not going to just change everyone's opinion about driving overnight but but if if we can make policy decisions that make driving the the lesser option or the worse option um then i i think that that gets us on the right track we're just right we're just not doing that yeah well you're right government moves slowly on purpose sometimes the only Mm -hmm. problem in here is that while government is moving slowly people are dying Exactly. And they're not just dying in one way. It's just like a we're dying from the pollution. We're dying from the vehicle itself. We're dying from the infrastructure that that just like splits cities and and states in half. And like just really like we the, the automobile, you can't just say, well, the automobile kills 35 or 40,000 people a year. I mean, it's much higher than that when you think about all the other uh, problems that go with it, that come with it. But, and ju- and even just the the you know I have a I have a seven year old and I I hesitate to go walk and ride my bike on the street with him because because we built this society that has decided the car is more important than the people around the car, and yeah. I think that's just like th- that's just something that from, it, it, that's all policy. These are all choices that we're making, and right. as a society, and yeah, I get frustrated when we can't just push that envelope further because i think i think people are more willing to use transit and walk and bike but they don't feel that it's safe and they don't feel um that that they're being supported by by the society around them and i think that that's completely right right well i i definitely see you as an advocate tom so good to meet you and and to read Same. about your your successes and i really enjoyed looking at your videos i highly encourage people to go out and check them out um some of them are very funny But if you ride a bike in Los Angeles, you will totally understand. Tom, thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is fun. So I met Tom on the bike strike. We hit Universal and Warner Brothers and Sony and Paramount. And it was really uh, great to talk to Tom, but it was really more interesting to talk to all the writers that are out on strike. And Lindsay, you're a writer. You're out on strike. Yeah, we're striking. Taylor, you guys just voted to go on strike. Right. Yeah. The actors just voted to go on strike. It doesn't mean we will. It just means that we have the authorization if they can't come to an agreement with the producers that the actors are willing to go out on strike and join the writers. You know, what kind of country do we want? Do we want a country where, you know, there's shared prosperity and some of the people who are, you know, won't make a deal? It's so little money to them. I mean, that's what's so shocking. But they really have this fantasy of, I'm not even kidding, eliminating the cost of labor. You guys are so rich. You're hoarding so much wealth and you're just stuck in this fantasy. 
producers, they have their technology, the artificial intelligence, but we have our technology, the bicycle, and we can hit 10 studios in a day on our bike strike. <laughs> if people support the writers and unions and the strike, look up Bike the Strike and join us if you have time on a Thursday. And next up. We're going back to Detroit, where community involvement is creating bike infrastructure that's connecting neighborhoods. Keep the park safe for everyone to get outside and get some sun to see their friends and see some trees so keep it slow and easy please cars are magic cars are quick sometimes a car is just the trick to get to where you have to get in style but kids can't drive and don't have cars and some adults also don't have cars or sometimes choose another way to navigate the town now it's all good and it's all great it's all love there's no room for hate we all have to get along and move around so share the streets and share the road Keep it clean and keep it slow Keep it cool and keep it fun Keep the park safe for everyone And keep it car free so the kids can play Car free to scoot and skate and ride Car free so we all can have a place To safely move outside Car free for a hundred years Car free for a hundred more For you and me, for them and they So everyone can get from A to B listening to Bike Talk. Now we have an interview with Jeff Jones, the president of Hope Village Revitalization. It's a community-driven organization with a broad mission that includes bike advocacy. Here's Jeff and Rio. We have Rio Ramsey here, and I talked to you, Rio, the other episode for Bike Month about what's going on in Detroit. It sounds like there's always something going on with bikes in Detroit. And, <laughs> and here you're introducing me to Jeff Jones from Hope Village Revitalization Project. Hey, this is Jeff Jones. And man, like you said, it's always something happening in Detroit around bikes. You know, we like to think we, you know, paved the way for the world to be on bikes. You know, that's what the history books tell us. The first paved mile of road was right here in Detroit. And guess what? It wasn't for the cars like you think it was. It was for bicycles. We're always trying to blaze a trail, man. In our Hope Village, you know, we do a bike ride every Tuesday. And, you know, Rio has been so gracious, man, to help us out and get it started. It's a community engagement thing. You know, when you ride through the neighborhood on that slow roll, you talk to your neighbors, you see them, you get them to come out and join you. Hey, man, that's how you build community. And that's what you do at Hope Village? Every day. Every day. You want to give a little background on what Hope Village is? I mean, we could talk about how the paved road was introduced in Detroit. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The first paved mile of road on Woodward. 
you know, I'm not sure if your listeners are that familiar with Detroit, but what what is like the main street, you know, the main drag of the city. And uh, Hope Village, you know, we're just about a mile west of that. You know, our neighborhood, I guess you might want to characterize it. The riot kind of shaped us, you know. It, it created a lot of disinvestment and a lot of blight. It, it caused the creation of an organization called Focus Hope to, you know, deal with how we heal this community. And, and Hope Village is just an offshoot of that original organization. And we've been responsible for building new housing and a and a beautiful park in the heart of our community. And that's the centerpiece of where, you know, all of these programs happen. The bike ride jumps off from there. And we got a farmer's market that happens every week there. Hope Village, I mean, it's about community. We're led by the community. You know, we're a majority Black community. And the organization is majority Black. It reflects the people who live here. And we've been real successful in helping our folks, you know, get jobs, live better lives. And improve their homes. Like I said in the beginning, it's about building community. We try to build it on all aspects. And you're an eco-district and you're working towards equitable and sustainable development in Detroit. And you're even trying to do things in a way that mitigates disparities in wealth and privilege and educational resources. It's a corporation. It's a... It's a nonprofit. We're a community development corporation. Um, yeah, I mean, we're funded uh, through a lot, a lot of grant funding, uh, um, philanthropic, as well as uh, certain uh, uh, healthcare uh, systems are funding some of our work around our health initiative. But yeah, we have. If if you're really going to be true about really helping the community, really moving the needle, you have to have that holistic approach, that wraparound way of thinking, and try to attack all the challenges. You know. You might not be successful at everything, but you got to start trying somewhere. And so that's what we've been successful at. We've got great partners and we're not afraid to work with people and we're not afraid to, you know, make a mistake along the way. But because our mission guides us, it's about the people, man. It's really about the people. And if the people say this is what we need, we're going to try our darndest to make sure we we try to get it done. And it sounds like you've been really successful. And so, Rio, what do you work with Jeff on? Uh, I work with Jeff on the Hope Village Tuesday ride. I actually met Jeff a few years ago in, in my neighborhood, the Russell Woods neighborhood. And we had so much common conversing on bicycles and seeing them on the road. Come to find out we're from literally a, a mile away from each other. And so we started collaborating on the Hope Village uh, Tuesdays, their ride. And so me and my club, Motown Trailblazers, we assist blocking traffic and making sure no one gets left behind. From the Hope Village, uh, is it Cool City, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, Cool City's Park. Yeah, we touch Russell Woods. We go into Highland Park, you know, all the adjacent neighborhoods because it's about the neighborhoods. We just showcased the Joe Louis Greenway that's being built in our neighborhood. We talked about the Joe Louis Greenway and how it was built through partnership with communities. Did that involve Hope Village? Yeah, man, Hope Village, we're going to host northern segment of it. It's funny, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I'm telling my age, you know, I'm 50 plus. But when I was a kid, this railroad track where the Joe Louis Greenway is going to go, I used to play around those railroad tracks, man, and go cray fishing because it was, you know, it was a wetland nearby. And we, as a kid, you know, I remember, you know, being in that space. 
and then it got abandoned, the railroads left. And, and so it's really wonderful that now, you know, this Joe Louis Greenway, which is going to kind of encircle the entire city, man, I think it's like 28 miles long. Mm-hmm. And it's taking this old abandoned railway that's running through many, you know, old neighborhoods in Detroit, you know, many of them who haven't seen investment, man, in 50 years. And this Greenway is going to mean something, I mean, nothing less than transformative, my friend. And Hope Village, I'm so geeked about it, you know, because I like to ride bikes. I remember playing in that space. And, you know, as a professional, I know what it's going to mean to my community. It means, you know, jobs. It means new businesses. Hell, man, it means my property values are going to go up. You know, it's, it's wealth. And to be able to say this is all tied to a bicycle, you know, man, that's just the icing on the cake. I think there were some issues of or considerations of the possibilities of gentrification, which always come up when you talk about bike lanes. Yeah, absolutely. That's in the forefront of the conversation. That's why I give a lot of credit to the city and to the Detroit Greenways partnership, you know, the people who kind of put this stuff together because they were intentional about making sure that community was involved in the very beginning. You know, man, as part of my job, I deal with development and I know how screwed up it is. And I know how it, you know, negatively impacts communities that don't have a voice at the table, particularly black and brown communities and poor communities. And so they were real intentional. You know, they've got residents participating as ambassadors, to go out and talk to their neighbors and let them know this is coming. You know, they're doing this before a shovel even hits the ground, you know, asking them about what they want to see, what's the concerns, because while we have an idea what the project is going to look like, you know, it's certain little things that only a resident can really tell you, you know, that maybe this intersection, you might need to, you know, add some lights here because people like to drive too fast or things like that that maybe the city downtown might not know about. And so, man, I'm, I'm excited for, you might hear it in my voice. I'm excited for, you know, for all the reasons I listed. And gentrification is a real concern, but I think now that we're in at, at the first stages, what's wrong with my people, the, the 95% black people who live in Hope Village, we can now go out here and buy some of these vacant lots and start thinking about how we start businesses that can benefit off of this greenway. So, yeah, gentrification can be a bad thing, but, hey, I look at things in the whole picture. We're, we live in a neighborhood that ain't been invested in in 50, 60 years. If the money's coming, why not make sure the black and brown people in the position take advantage of it? We ain't going to stop the gravy train. So there's a way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if nobody, if it's not raining, we all, we all die of thirst, but we have to be smart and intentional about it. Yeah. The challenges and the risks are real, but you know, black and brown communities, we're capable of doing development. We got the intelligence and and, and the capacity to, start businesses and, and, and capitalize on stuff like this, I have no doubt about it. And it's in Detroit. This is what we're known for. We're innovators. We do stuff like this. Yeah. You were the first paved path for bikes. Absolutely. 
And on the side note, the reason why it got paid was because the rich folks wanted it. You know, poor folks could ride on rough roads, but the rich folks wanted something smooth to take their ladies on on Sunday afternoon. So they paved Woodward. So, hey, gentrification can benefit everybody if you do it the right way. Wow. So that's how we got to where you are now. And how do you call people into the whole bike infrastructure or safe streets understanding? That's like two different questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I hear two different ways. Let me, let me take the first part because let me brag on our neighborhood. Because of this Joe Lewis Greenway and because of the other stuff we got going, I like to think our neighborhood is the hottest neighborhood in Detroit. One of the more exciting projects we've got it's a group called Detroit Horsepower that uses horses to work with, you know, kids in the city of Detroit. And we're building the first urban equestrian center, you know, in America. It's going to be the largest one in America, right here in our community, right close to the Joe Louis Greenway. So, you know, I can even imagine certain times you'll see the bikes and you might even see a horse or two. So, man, how funky is that? But to your yeah, to your second point, and I think Rio can testify to this, man. He and I lived less than a mile away from each other, but we didn't know each other. But bikes brought us together. And it's people who ride bikes now who five, ten years ago, they might have been, you know, shooting at each other because they were from different neighborhoods. But now because of bicycles and we ride together, we ride through different neighborhoods together. We get to know one another, know each other's spaces. It's brought a whole different type of vibe and brotherhood, sisterhood. Man, this this bike life thing is real. Hmm. And, and, and I'm sure Rio can tell you some stories about the places and spaces he's been with folks. You know, he, ain't, he never would have thought he would have met. Oh, he's absolutely right. With me being 33 and me growing up in the 90s, like, especially like with group rides, just like the bicycles, they said in, uh, on the labels back in the day, we didn't ride at night at all. When the street lights came on, we came in the house. Fun was over. Now that it's group rides and there are more people being safe with bicycle lights, now if I want to take my goddaughter or, or my niece, I want to take her riding down the street and I, she feels significantly more safer with bike lanes versus five years ago when, or six years ago, where there were only bike lanes on one street in the entire city. Now I can show her certain things that I could never show her before. I had to show her in a car. When I was a kid, I could basically ride where I wanted. But like I said, at night, it was definitely an issue. But now I've been all over the city and I've just seen what the beauty of bike lanes and how it, updating the infrastructure is. Detroit is the first modern city in the United States and maybe one of the first modern cities in the world, possibly. Like Jeff was saying, we're innovators here just as a culture, no matter what your race is. My grandmother, she stayed in the Russell Woods neighborhood since the 50s. You know, Lord willing, she will be 90 right now. She used to tell me that the community was better when we were all together, working together, contributing together. And it wasn't just about, quote unquote, gentrification. It was more about just learning from each other. Like the majority of my neighborhood has synagogues in it and not churches. It's meaning that primarily a Jewish neighborhood at one point. And it's just about us, you know, building and learning from each other on what we have and modernizing it for the next generation. And I feel like the Joe Louis Greenway is doing just that. You know, as a young black entrepreneur, I'll be showcased on the Joe Louis Greenway for my bicycle lights uh, next year. 
And it'd be a lot of businesses will have that opportunity. And it's just about coming to those meetings and actually getting the information that the city is dying for our community to have. And I'm just grateful that the city is investing in their communities, restructuring things so it can be a lot safer for us in our community. Like I said before, I've been on a bicycle by seven or eight years now riding. I've never been robbed. I've never witnessed any violence going on in the city. I've seen them clean up a ton of blight in our city that was well needed due to people exiting the city in droves. That mass exodus from Detroit with the spark of the Joe Greenway, I think it'll be a key for making us a superpower in the United States again as far as Detroit and instead of just Metro Detroit. Detroit versus Metro Detroit? Here in Metro Detroit, I mean, the public uh, transit system is horrible. Trying to get out into the suburbs, ride out to the suburbs. Like in, in the Joe Louis Greenway, you can ride towards Dearborn and you can ride near other uh, suburbs. But without the Joe Louis Greenway, I wouldn't feel as safe riding to the suburbs by myself unless I had others with me. And it's not a, a factor of racism or anything like that. It's just just pure distance. And I feel like here we have something safe for our own, of our own in our neighborhood. I don't have to ride downtown anymore just to find somewhere safe to ride my bike. And that's just such a blessing for anybody, if that makes sense. Yeah, that Metro Detroit, City of Detroit thing, the Greenway kind of blurs that line. Because, you know, the Greenway and bike life in general makes me feel more comfortable riding my bike out into the suburbs. And just by what I see with my own two eyes, I see more people who don't look like me riding through my community and they're feeling comfortable, you know, on their way downtown or connecting with the Greenway. So, yeah, I think what Rio was saying, yeah, bike life blurs that line, Metro Detroit versus Detroit. We, we become, all of us become Detroit. No distinction, fine. That's like close to being a motto. Pushing <laughs> <laughs> Pedal Sunday is coming up. We'll be, on a lot of our rides, utilizing the Joe Louis Greenway just to introduce a lot of new people who haven't seen the Greenway into it. It's almost like when you get on the freeway, that feeling, not necessarily danger-wise, but just, it's just for y'all. Like, it's just for cars, but except it's just for non-motor vehicles. It's, it's been run clubs that's been started in Detroit because of the Greenway. It's been skate clubs have been started just for the Greenway. It's not, it's bigger than just bicycles. It's just about people getting together and finding, you know, and, and what they love just in general and fellowshipping through that. It sounds like the Greenway is a great thing. And we're at WNUC in Detroit on Thursdays, and we are going to want to represent more of the bike scene over there. So Rio, if you and Jeff, you know, there's anything else you want to talk about? Anything going on? We're having a ride, Pushing Pedal Sundays hosted by my bicycle club, Motown Trailblazers. We're doing rides showcasing different Detroit restaurants. And we'll be using the Greenway on some of those rides to help showcase those restaurants. And like to celebrate Juneteenth, our first five or six rides, we're going to be showcasing Black-owned businesses. I mean, Black-owned restaurants specifically. And so, so we're starting across the street from a, from a bar called The Congregation. They, they turned the church into a bar. I didn't pick there because of a bar, but I picked there because of a restroom. And it's very vital that you have a restroom on your route, just for case for anybody, but specifically for the ladies who might need to handle their business you know, before we go. And we're having a raffle all of June. I mean, on every ride sponsored by the city of Detroit, more specifically the Department of Mobility and Innovation. You're going mainstream. Just the city is just pitching in. I wouldn't even say mainstream, just... The city's believing in the hard work we put in since 2017, and we're just trying to 
showcase their faith in us and honor that faith by having the best ride possible and showcasing some of the premier affordable restaurants in Detroit and show how eclectic and how diverse our city is food-wise. Well, it is. It's We're all Detroit? Or... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. We're all Detroit. In reality. <laughs> yeah. If you wasn't born here, guess what? Your grandparents were. So, hey, you Detroit. <laughs> we, everybody's got some Detroit. If Detroit wins and if Detroit can be revitalized, any city or any neighborhood in the country can be revitalized into something of that, you know what I'm saying, those citizens' own vision. And I think That's that right. with us coming to these city bike meetings and people like me and Jeff and leaders in our communities, us coming together from millennials to our elders to the generation, you know, below us, I mean, after us, let me not say below, us coming together as a unit, it's going to just do nothing but blossom from here and grow from here. We just pave the way for the next generation. That's right. right. Thank you so much, Rio and Jeff. And come again on Bike Talk anytime. Oh, no problem. No problem. Thank you so much. We love the invitation. That was great. What I really loved was when Jeff Jones said that this is a community that has not seen investment for over 50 years. And now it's finally getting some investment. But the ideas of what that investment is, is coming from within the neighborhood. That, that is, is exactly what we want, so that they are able to connect their own neighborhoods. Uh, next up, we have an interview with Western Massachusetts, and they've used money from the bipartisan infrastructure law to create safe streets for all. You're listening to Bike Talk. Now we're going to hear from Daniel Murphy, the city engineer from the Department of Public Works in the city of East Hampton, Massachusetts, and how they're using the Safe Streets for All funds to connect to a bike infrastructure spine of existing trails. You know, East Hampton's lucky because Daniel is a a biker and a walker. So this just shows how important it is for cities to have people that are working in the Public Works Department who are vulnerable road users that aren't only car-centric people. And here's the interview with our Massachusetts co-host, Galen Moog, who also happens to be executive director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. All right. On the horn, we have Dan Murphy. He is the city engineer out in East Hampton, Massachusetts. It's kind of right in the heart of the Connecticut River Valley. Um, Dan, you are with Bike Talk. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to kind of get somebody who's so embedded in the municipal work to kind of speak a little bit as to what's going on. So for our listeners who are out there, granted, some are from the Florence area, some are from Massachusetts, but we got a lot of tuning in from around the country. Um, I hope you can describe a little bit about East Hampton and your role in uh, the municipal side of it. Sure. I'm a city engineer, uh, very small engineering staff. It's myself and one other person. Uh, we focus on all the infrastructure in town. So Union Street was one that we're working through now and it's under construction. We made improvements on that road, did uh, did bike lanes, and we're looking at the same thing for Main Street now. We're just starting that process. So our role as the engineers is just to kind of help move these things through, get through the, the public process, get through all the permitting. And then when the project gets constructed, the mass dot actually takes takes on the construction role of the project. Gotcha. So I'm looking here at a flyer you have at the Envision Main Street in East Hampton. But the idea is that you're kind of going to rethink uh, the the purpose of Main Street, or at least I'm kind of getting that from the flyer. And I'm wondering, can you talk about this particular project and how engineering, particularly your role in engineering, is going to envision a new concept for Main Street? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the, the first things that jumps when you, I don't know if you know, if you ever go out there, it's it's pretty wide. There's interesting features. There's a rotary right now that goes around on the eastern end, and it's it's pretty much two lanes wide. So you've got two lanes of traffic, you know, going next to each other, taking ins and outs. But it's a, it's not a tr- traditional roundabout. It's like a w- big wide with a park in the middle called Pulaski Park. So one of the things that we definitely want to make happen is to calm the street down because it's really, it's very wide now. That rotor is really wide. And uh, so we're looking at a bunch of things and uh, calming obviously is one, one big one, but also there's a talk of thinking about chaining the park and removing the actual, the, the roundabout in its current format or the in its current format and maybe chaining the park to one side to make the park more of a, uh, kind of a peaceful place because right now you've got traffic going around it all, all the time. Yeah, I gotcha. It's right in the heart of East Hampton too, right? Isn't it? That's like, correct. It's correct. Yeah, everybody's so kind of got to go through it. It'd be a big change, but there's, there's some support to chain the park and see what we could do. It's tricky because you'd have to put a light in or maybe the possibility of a roundabout on the end there to, to make it work. But um, we got to work through all that. We got this bike interest that want to get through. We'd like to get through this whole section with a, with a safe protected bike lanes or, right. or a shared use path, whichever we're trying to figure out which, which is the best approach for different locations. There's a couple neck points where there's parking um, that people, you know, we still need to take care of parking, but um, we, maybe we can look at parallel parking. Maybe we can reduce it in some areas, or we can focus on areas outside of, of the project limits for where parking could be. Uh, we could add more parking or at least let people know there's parking available if we needed to take some parking within the corridor. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I'm proud to hear you kind of say that up front and center, because usually when uh, municipal officials start talking about changing parking, it seems to be a third, uh, third rail live wire for a public process. But how has that conversation been going in East Hampton? The 25% uh, design won't be submitted until January. So we're early stages and we're oh, reaching out, reaching out to businesses, reaching out to everybody. There's, there's pretty good support for improving for bikes and, and pedestrian and making more kind of community space. But certainly we need to pay attention. We are doing a parking utilization study to look at uh, what the use is now, where the areas are, where there isn't a lot of use and trying to make sure that we take into account, you know, the areas that do get a lot of use and make sure that we maintain that for the businesses. Who has been engaged so far in the the process and uh, who are the users that you're hoping that you can draw out for the open house and the other meetings? Anybody, anybody who's interested, we've reached out to building owners, business interest, all, anybody involved in government, I have a huge email list of all interested folks um, reaching out to, you know, uh, Pioneer Valley, the mass dots involved, any of the bike, any you folks for sure would love love to have your input and thoughts. If, if folks were interested to come, that would be great. Um, so we're really trying to reach out to everyone we can, whoever anybody who has any interest at all. I want to talk a little bit about East Hampton in general. Um, how long have you been city engineer here? About six, seven years. Yep. That's great. And it's just you and one staff. So it's a pretty small, uh, yeah. small office. Well, we work pretty closely with the planning and then we've got uh, the DPW director and this, we have all the highway, you know, the, the utility folks as well, but yeah, for engineering, it's just a couple of us. Yeah. It's amazing. For our audience who doesn't know East Hampton, can you describe uh, the demographics? Um, how large is it? What kind of um, landscape does it feel like? It's a small city with a mayor, about 16,000 people. I wouldn't call it a dense city. It's more, it's more of a rural city with a, with a small center section with a couple state roads that run through it with older sections. But then there's a lot of single family development as you move outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a small city feel, I guess cool. is the way I'd put it. 
I love this spiel. And this is great because the, <laughs> the feel of a small city is important to represent on the show. We get a lot of talk from people who are doing stuff in Boston and Cambridge or in LA or Chicago, where arguably, you know, you have a big cultural push because you've got a couple million people you're dealing with. Yeah. I'm really interested to dig a little bit into what a, a city, a small city, a rural city of 16,000, how do you get major transportation projects? How do you get the funding? <laughs> how do you get the wherewithal to really kind of redesign? Because um, arguably we're, we're facing this across the country of cities and towns who just really don't have the resources. Transportation, the regional planning, Pioneer Valley Planning, they oversee like a regional transportation group and all the cities and towns in Pioneer Valley can join this and you basically can define projects, bring them to them yearly, you know, on an annual basis and get them programmed on the, on the kind of list which allows you to get state money. So we did that for Union Street, got some money for that, and, and uh, happily it's under construction now. And then the next logical place for us was to look at Main Street. You know, and that's going to, right now, it's estimated to be a you know, $14 million project uh, oh. when all is said and done. So it's it's a good place to get uh, money for larger projects. You can get smaller ones on there, but they do focus on, they do like to see all the connections to, you know, to, to, for bikes, walkers, transit, city centers, that you score higher when you have all that stuff within your project, you know, a rural road, like that just out on the edges would be tougher to get funding from this source, but it's a great source for, you know, for cities and towns in the Valley to, 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 to get projects done. That's great. And I like how you were leading with the idea of we're calming the streets. Um, yep. Do you think that's like a, a relatively new priority? I mean, usually when we think about traffic engineers, we think about throughput, we think about repaving and, yeah. and all of that, but yeah. how has the traffic calming been engaged in the conversation? Well, I, I've been talking about 10 foot lanes for a long time and they're, oh, wow. start, they're, start, the they're starting to be starting to be seen here. We're going to paint one uh, next week, hopefully wow. on the new street. We just did comics a big deal for me. We've had three fatalities in East Hampton since in the past, let's see, five years. Oh, one was one was a few hundred feet or several hundred feet away from city hall it was just a at a, at a crosswalk a woman got hit and killed it's very sad mm-hmm. and then last summer we had two two people up on the state highway route 10 killed crossing yeah it was a place where there wasn't a good sidewalk on one side they were making a crossing at a place where it would feel natural to make a crossing you know, if, we, if you look at it and you stand there, you, you can see it. And uh, sadly, so I think about that every day. Um, and that kind of guides a lot of what I what I do and what I think about as a city engineer. Wow. I'm I'm both fairly impressed, but also heartened that this is something you have to think about every day because it is yeah. the reality. So about traffic calming, what we've seen a lot in Massachusetts, at least, is kind of this complete streets yeah. support. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what complete streets is for our audience and how you're getting state dollars to to kind of help out some of these traffic calming projects. Yeah, we went through we went through that. In fact, Cottage Street with the with the when we had uh, the fatality, we did a complete streets project immediately after that, and we put up our you know the RRFBs as flashing beacons at uh, two locations there. Complete in a nutshell is basically you come up with a, a list of all the places that you think you could make improvements to sidewalks, to bikes, for crossings, all that, and you compile that. And the state of Mass had to do one a bunch of years ago, several now. But now the ne- the next one coming, which is important to tell everybody for Mass anyway, or and actually for the country, is safe streets for all. That's taking the complete streets to the next level. It's kind of focusing probably more on safety and where where problems are known to exist 
for safety and people, you know, accidents where people get killed and hurt. Um, so that's due July 10th. That's safe streets for all. So anybody listening should encourage their leaders or their regional planning agency to make sure they apply for that money because you can get money just for the planning level. And if you have a plan done, you can then get money for larger projects. And Springfield, Mass is going through a big one right now, making a ton of safety improvements at a lot of intersections. Yeah, it's great. And they've seen an uh, uptick in pedestrian fatalities there, too. So unfortunately, yep. they are tied to the, the danger zones. And for all our listeners, this is coming from the FHWA. These are the, the federal dollars that were programmed um, when the bipartisan infrastructure bill got passed about a year and a half ago. So as much as you want to say the dysfunction of Washington's holding things up now, there are some times when that train <laughs> gets unplugged and uh, it does make its way down to the local level. Yeah, um, we're going to take advantage of regionally. I think Pioneer Valley planning is, is going to regionally apply for basically to get those plans done for all of the towns, cities and towns in the region. And then we'll be able to each town could then apply for projects of the next round. That's great. So, and it's yeah. so important because, you know, definitely in Massachusetts level, it, it really comes down to every city and town doing it on their own. Yeah, at the project level, I think so. But, you know, it's good that the regional agency is going to pick up and, and get a grant to do all the cities and towns at once. I think it'll be it'll be a huge step. Yeah, I feel you there. Um, my experience with East Hampton, my, actually, I said my first experience with East Hampton. I've been out there several times, but yeah. it was riding the bike path and yeah. taking its way down um, from Northampton and, and checking it out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the wonders of the bike path and how that's been an inspiring uh, element for you personally, but also yeah. to galvanize the town to do some safe street projects. In the winter, in the cooler weather, I park nearby on the outskirts and then I walk in and out of city hall just to get the exercise because I'm a little older guy and I need to lose some weight. <laughs> so I do that. But now that the warmer weather's here, it's easier to bike. So I put the bike in the back of the car and I find places to park up near the Connecticut River in Northampton or downtown Northampton. And I ride that last section. And it's a great, for me, it's a great way to be able to, to, to come into work and I can do it walking. I can do it biking and the rail trail makes it all possible. And you're thinking of it as a spine that you're trying to connect throughout the city. Yeah. Um, how's that been going? It's going good. I mean, I, we look at the map, we figure out where we can make connections. We're doing a safe route to school. Again, we're going through Main Street. Mastod is planning on doing, uh, you know, protected bike all the way north to Northampton, line on Northampton Street. And we get ideas from all over, which is great for different places. We can make, uh, you know, short pedestrian bridge connections or hmm. or just little little pieces is one we're looking at behind the mills. Maybe do a bridge across the pond to connect a whole big old neighborhood on the other side of the pond that connect that directly to the mills. So there's just places all over. You can, if you think about it, you can really find things that really build off the spine. Oh, that's so wonderful. I look forward to it. And I know that the Manhand, which connects up eventually the Mass Central Rail Trail, yep. which would be 104 miles from Boston, to Northampton. Once we connect through what Southampton to Westfield, yep. that's coming up, right? <laughs> yep. And yep. basically you can go all the way to New Haven. It's outstanding to, to be able to build these things and connect them. That's so cool. I'm proud that you are a, a personal user as well as a supporter and an engineer to make sure that we can get all the connections happening. What would you consider to be your bike joy? Gosh, I like being on a safe. I like the Manhattan Trail. I like just uh, the, the wind in my hair, driving down the path on a nice day and knowing that I'm, I'm getting exercise and getting in shape and uh, it's peaceful out there. I guess that, that's my joy. I love it. Peaceful out there. Well, with that, Dan, <laughs> I'll let you go. Uh, we got Dan Murphy here, the city engineer in East Hampton. They have a great project happening on Main Street. Stay engaged on that project. They're saying all the way through January is the 25% design, but right. there's a lot going on in the city. So, Dan, please let us know. We can help you out and keep up the good work. All right. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks a lot. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer from Portland, Oregon on the show, and he talked a lot about how important it is for towns and cities to be applying for this safe street for all money. The deadline's July 10th. You got to reach out to your civic leaders to apply for this money. Yeah, it'd be a shame to let the deadline close and not have used that money. And have it just go back into paving highways. Yeah. It was a good show, Nick. I'm really glad we got both the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Midwest. And now we got the new Florence in Oregon. KXCR, 90.7 FM. Actually, we're on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles too. KPFK. There's a lot of synchronicity happening. Yeah. If you like the show, uh, like us. But also, you know, send us an email if you have a question or if there's a topic that you want us to talk about or you have an opinion about some of the topics that we're talking about. Go to biketalk.org and let us hear your voice. We'll read your email in the air uh, and you can click on our Patreon link. Great. Before we go, my Uncle Dan. Bike Talk is, is a necessity for survival of, of the human race. It's an idea that has to happen. It's bigger than, than we are. And health is more important than, than anything. So health is is like bike talk. Have a great day. I love it all. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Thanks Lindsay. Nick. Thanks, Lindsay. See you next week. Be safe out there. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.